Hi, this is Paul, and I have a, a really special guest on today. This isn't a randos conversation because Raj is not a rando. Raj has been coming to our local meetup and then estuary for how many years now, Raj? A uh, couple of years. I First one I went to was before uh, lockdown, so it's been a little bit. Okay. Okay. So Raj, Raj has given me a lot of good ideas over, over the years. And he's, um, he's been, he's been very active locally when Josiah, some of you might know that Josiah is another CRC pastor in the area who also started an estuary. And so Living Stones has one um, once a month and, and Josiah has one once a month. So there's, there's there's still some more slots in Sacramento for someone who wants to do estuary, but Raj has been to has been to both. So um, so Raj and I we've been we've been going to have this conversation for quite a while now, and and Raj has been on a very interesting journey. And so I asked him at our last meetup. I said, "Oh, Raj, we got to put this on the calendar." And um, so here it is, and here we go. And I said, "What do you want to do, Raj?" He says, "Well, let's just do what you usually do." And so. Okay, so uh, we'll we'll start with you, Raj. All right, tell us a little bit um, about yourself. Uh, well, first, I'll do a plug for the North Sacramento Estuary uh, <laughs> Hop Garden uh, this Thursday at seven. All right, all right. Um, so there's which that. means I have to get this up soon, so it can be. Yeah. Uh, I have to get it up tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, jump in the queue, I guess. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, and then I will go into uh, sort of my story. First, I did say that I was going to do this at the, the last meetup, but um, for some reason, all along the Watchtower, um, whenever I think about us having this conversation, that song pops into my head. So The Bob um, Dylan song? Yeah, Bob Dylan. Uh, although I will uh, sing slash recite, not really sing, uh, the version with the Jimi Hendrix uh, makes an aug augmentation. Oh, really? Hendrix in the first chord. Yeah, to the first verse. And I haven't Bob heard Dylan the Jimi Hendrix version. Um, Bob Dylan actually prefers the lyrical changes that Jimmy made. And so it's the only song Bob Dylan plays at every single one of his concerts. And he sings it the way Jimi Hendrix performs it. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Um, so uh, there must be some kind of way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Businessman, they drink my wine. Plowman digs my earth. None will level on the line. Nobody offered his word. Um, then it goes, let us stop talking falsely now. Um, the thief, he kindly said, there are those, um, or, oh man, I should have pulled up the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> um, let us stop talking falsely now. The thief, he kindly said, there are money here among us who believe that life is just a joke but you and i we've been through that and this is not our fate oh so let us stop talking falsely now and then the the um last verses uh all along the watchtower princess kept the view while all the women came and went their foot servants too uh outside in the cold distance um two figures or a wildcat did crowl two riders were approaching and the wind begins to howl um so there's just a little bit of a divine invocation of the muse i guess anyway <laughs> okay okay so that's 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 why um that's that that's your motivation for quoting this i mean how does this how does this connect um connect the dots for us um i think there's a lot of people out there who think that life is a joke right now and um um you and i we've 
been through this, but this is not our fate. So let us stop talking falsely now, right? I think that that kind of uh, is a good picture of what's happening in this corner of the internet, I think. Okay, okay. Um, so, all right, well, um, I'm Raj, Raj Deep is the full name. Um, I was born in Sacramento and in this house, actually, not in this house, but this is my grandparents' house. Um, this is where I spent the first two, three years of my life. And then um, eventually I made my way back here. I was living with my grandmother before she passed away in uh, December of 2021. And uh, I was born on Easter, Easter Sunday. April Were you 16th. really? Yeah, April 16th. Um, it's the only time when the the Western and the Eastern churches celebrate Easter at the same time. Wow. Um, so that's always been uh, something that, whatever reason that's part of my story <laughs> um and yeah um i raised in a sikh household um although i my my dad does not keep his hair but my parents aren't um super religious uh they we went to godwara that's the sikh temple um since i was little my parents made sure they um taught me about the basics uh, i knew who all the 10 gurus are i was taught the stories i was taught a little bit about barney or scripture uh, but it wasn't something that was mm, it was there in the background i wouldn't say it was central though we didn't necessarily organize our life around it on a day-to-day -day kind of way, but it's definitely where my parents got their morals from and um, where they, it's the foundation of both of my parents' worldview. Okay. Were your parents immigrants? My parents are immigrants. Um, they, but they came when they were relatively young. My mom is an American for all intents and purposes. She got here when she was about two or three years old. Okay um and then my can dad... you raise your sound level up a little bit do you have oh, that yeah uh let's see how's that better better yeah good cool and then um my dad he he got here pretty young too he was about 10 11 uh i think oh wow so they're both they both came as children yeah yeah so in, in a lot of ways i am almost like a second generation american um and my mom is the eldest on her side so uh, both of her brothers were actually born in America. And then my dad is the youngest. Um, so he he's the most, out of his siblings, he's the one who's the most formed by America. And um, as my parents, as many immigrants, are really proud to be American. <laughs> and that's something that has definitely um, influenced me. Like, I, I love this country. I love... Um, I'm unabashedly patriotic and uh, <laughs> which was a interesting experience when I went to college. <laughs> um, well, let's back up a little bit. So really your grandparents were the intentional immigrants. Your yes. parents were brought over, but your grandparents came over. Yes. And uh, in both cases, my grandfathers came over first um, to secure the resources and, you know, get a lay of the land so they both came a couple of years before the rest of the family did and in both cases the first person who was able to come over the to the country was um a great uncle 
I guess, of mine. Yeah, great uncle who came over on a student visa. And then okay. they petition like mad for everybody else to come over. So why did your grandparents, did did your, did both sets of grandparents know each other or just no. or not at all? Okay. No, not at all. Um, did they all come to Sacramento? No. no. So my dad's side of the family all came to Sacramento, all including all of his extended family. And then my mom's side, I think their original stop was Lodi. Um, but then it's pretty close to Sacramento. It is very close. But then they ended up settling um, in Selma in the Fresno area. Oh, and so all of my mom's extended family is in the um, Fresno area. And my grandfather, my maternal grandfather is one of 13. Wow. And so they all came over. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. They had a good immigrant immigration lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, my maternal grandmother, she she also got all of her family over. Immigration was a lot easier back in the 60s and 70s. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, it's definitely a harder thing to pull off now. You're not going to be able to petition 13 siblings and their families to come over. Yeah, yeah. Um, Why? What was your motivation for immigration? Uh, economic opportunity, mostly. Okay. Uh, things were... Well, the, in India, what you have is family will have a land right and then it gets divided up by the sons every generation and that can only last so long without having to buy more land and then um and there's also the political instability i don't know how much of that was a factor um explicitly but i'm sure uh my grandparents on both sides of the family could feel that anxiety in the air uh my maternal grandfather was born in what is present-day pakistan at the time it was india so he went through partition he was, oh, wow. he was a child uh he was a little kid maybe about four years old uh, but i mean he's still and my my paternal grandfather as well um and they both there's trauma there that i don't think was ever dealt with in their lives um my father or my grandfather paternal grandfather he um had dementia at the end of his life and uh, he would have these flashback moments where he was worried about, he would say, the Muslims are going to get me. The Muslims are going to get me. That That's a callback to what was happening during partition. Right. Um, so. All of your um, grandparents seek? Yes. Okay. Yes. Talk, uh, there's probably a lot of people who don't know much about Sikh and India. And so why don't you sketch that out a little bit? Because that's, that's, that's pretty important. Because people don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Sikhi um, is how we refer to the religion, um, Sikhism. Um, but, you know, the ism label gets complicated for all sorts of reasons. So it's Sikhi. And um, that is a religion that started with our founder, Guru Nanak. Um, and um, the religion is about 550 years old. Guru Nanak was born in 1469, so it's a relatively new uh, religion. And um, it, it originates from where my family is from in India, the state of Punjab. Punjab is unique in the when it comes to India and Pakistan because there is a Punjab in both. When partition happened, what happened was <laughs> this, I forget his name, this Brit came over and he was assigned with this job to create the border between India and Pakistan. 
and he could not give a hoot. <laughs> oh. um, he 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 did not want to be there, and so what he did is he got dragged all the way out there, and he basically just drew a line, and he said this is what the border is going to be, and it ran right through Punjab, and um, to this day, it, it runs through families' properties, <laughs> like your half of your property might be in a different country because this he just didn't care um and so this created the um part of the motivation for the creation of the packs the state of pakistan was so that the muslims could have their own country and um sikhs are in punjab that is where most sikhs in the world are to this day and so um the Muslims didn't necessarily want us in um, Pakistan. And then there's also lots of issues between the Sikhs and the Hindus. So what happens is all the Muslims in India start to move to Pakistan. All the Hindus in Pakistan start to move to India. And the Sikhs are kind of caught in the middle while they're also trying to go over to India. And um, partition is the single largest migration event in human history um and and there's still tons of tension around punjab and india and pakistan i mean his his lack of competence and diligence has cursed a part of the world where a great many people live to this day yeah um do your job well (laughs) don't don't uh don't do your job while hating it (laughs) or don't do a job that you hate i guess (laughs) because it could have serious consequences yes especially Um, when it comes to borders yeah so to this day um there's a fierce um there's a few fierce border disputes between india and pakistan not necessarily in punjab but um a little bit further up north north and there's what's called LOC, L-O-C, the line of control. And uh, basically these two countries have heavily armed borders with guns pointing at each other constantly. Yeah. Um, so. But yeah. the Sikh, the Sikh community has had historically uh, rough treatment from both Hindus and Muslims in. Um, yes. So that's that there's a long and difficult history there too. And yeah, and there's so, a f- um go ahead. Well historically, um during the time of the gurus, the human um the human guruship and the early Sikh community, we were routinely genocided by uh um Muslim empires, including the Mughals and uh Afghani Empire. And then as Recently, as 1984, we suffered a, um, many would argue, I would probably argue as well, that we suffered a genocide at the hand of the Indian government in 1984, um, where they sent in a military invasion to our holiest site and uh, through retaliation on our part, um, which resulted in the death of Indra, Indra Gandhi, uh, this led to pogroms, essentially, uh, by Indian citizens against any sort of Sikh that they could find. Um, so, um, and then when it also comes to partition, there are two highly important cities for the Sikh community. One would be Amritsar, which is where the Golden Temple or, or Harmandir Sahib is. Um, 
that's the air the, the holy site that was attacked in 1984 by the by the indian government um but then historically our city of political um importance was lahore which is in pakistan so this line basically severed the it, it's the border is almost equal distance between our holy city and then our political center, uh, capital. Um, so it's caused a ton of disruption. And it's also one of the reasons why Sikhs are um, more likely to emigrate out of India than other religious groups or ethnic groups. And in the United States, what are the major areas of Sikh immigration? There seems to be a pretty strong population here in the Sacramento area, or at least here in the Central yeah, the Valley. Central Valley. Central Valley is very big. Um, some of the first uh, immigrants out of India arrived in the Central Valley, and they were struck by the landscape because it's a lot like Punjab. Uh, and I went to Punjab in 2019 for the first time, and it is very similar. Hmm. Valley. So Punjab, Punjab means five rivers. Uh, uh, so it's a it's a rich valley, fertile valley region with lots of rivers, very similar to the Central Valley. Um, and that's why a bunch of Punjabi Sikhs came from Punjab to the Central Valley and set up shop as farmers. And this has uh, contributed to us being a very successful minority group in the state of California. Okay. Uh, basically from Yuba City to Bakersfield, you will have Punjabi Sikh owned farms throughout that whole area. Okay. Um, and other hotspots would be, there's a sizable population in Michigan. I don't know too much about that population because I've never been there. I've had family move there and move back from there. Um, Michigan and Wisconsin. I'm not quite sure what that's about. Um, Punjabi Sikhs are also tend to be truck drivers, so that, that's a that's a pretty big truck driving hub, I believe. Yeah. And then th there's a um, decent size population in Queens, and that's just a, a New York City thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a group from there's there's, there's populations from all over the world in the New York area. New York yeah. City is the second um, largest Dominican city, Dominic from the Dominican Republic. Really? Santo Domingo is the first. New York City is the second. So it's just wow. just New York. So yeah, that's just that's just the city. So um, well, what did your then, what kind of jobs did your parents, your grandparents do when they came over? Um my maternal did they get did they get into farming or did they yeah. earn... so my my maternal grandparents were farming uh first they this shows you how different the american economy was back then they worked as uh, field hands essentially they were just working in the fields and um also a little bit of work in the canneries and through frugality and hard work and putting their kids to work they were able to buy a house in cash <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so um Classic my immigrant story. <laughs> and now my uh, maternal grandparents, um, they own hundreds of acres over in Selma. So they Good did for them fairly well for themselves. <laughs> and then my uh, paternal grandparents in this house that I'm in right now, um, they came over, did similar things. Uh, they started out in the fields, then they got more, I guess you could say conventional jobs. Um, my, my grandfather, Father worked at a lumber mill manufacturing doors, and my grandmother, uh, she had several jobs. She um, 
cannery at one point, and then she worked at a plant nursery and she worked as a maid in a motel um, on Stockton Boulevard. And then um, she, she, so she worked two jobs and did all the house chores. Wow. <laughs> She's a titan of a woman. Wow. <laughs> She's an absolute titan. Yeah. Um, and when and you then, say st- hotel on Stockton Boulevard, listeners aren't going to have a picture yeah, of what that looks like here, but <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the really nice hotels are not on no. Stockton Boulevard. <laughs> no, definitely not the nice part of town. Um, so yeah, so, they, and then they were able to, at one point they purchased a Kiwi farm, but then, um, they sold it probably before they should have. So that was just a little bit of economic bad luck. (laughs) (laughs) So how did your parents meet? Um, arranged. So my, um, my dad's eldest brother, his wife knew about my mom's family and then they started having them talk and, um, it wasn't like, this is the person you're going to marry, go marry them. It was, you know, we're introducing you. And then they, they started talking. My dad was in optometry school in Boston at the time. And my mother had finished her master's in communication from Fresno state. And, um, so they started talking, they figured, Oh, this seems like it's going to work. And then they, they got married. And then, uh, that was in 93. Yeah. I think 93. Okay. And then I came along in 95. All right. All right. Wonderful. Um, and um, grew up in here in Sacramento and your, your, is your father an optometrist? Yeah. My father is an optometrist. I actually did not grow up in Sacramento. Oh, um, I was born here, but then we moved to Washington state when I was about three years old. Oh, okay. So I, I grew up in Washington and I was up there until I was 17 and then my senior year of high school, right before my senior year of high school, <laughs> oh no, we moved to the Fresno area. So that's where my parents are currently. They've been there for about the last twelve years or so. Oh, okay. So I had to do senior year in a in a whole new high school. Which oh man, <laughs> was not fun, but so it goes. But you mentioned that your parents did participate in in Siki, and yeah. and so, so you the- were raised in it. And what, what does that now for Christians, they go to church on Sunday, usually go, well, how does that work in, um, so, um, the closest temple to us, closest Godwara was about 45 minutes or maybe about an hour away. So okay. we would go maybe once a month, usually on a Sunday, just cause that was a convenient day. And, um, I mean, it wasn't, we weren't very involved. I remember as a child really being drawn to the experience um i remember seeing other kids running around playing um in sort of the prayer hall and even when i was like four four or five years old that used to really bother me i was like what are you guys doing <laughs> um, and a little jesus um, in the temple courts action there huh? <laughs> Um, I, I would never really talk to anybody, but uh, sometimes we would go with family friends and they would want to do that. And we we would do that. I, I would participate a little bit in that, but it was it always felt wrong. Um, and I don't know if that was an internal feeling or it was also I'm sure it was my parents influence as well. 
Um, and so at a Sikh temple, at a Gaudwara, the central routine is you go in and then our scripture, who is our guru, uh, we can get more into that later, um, is placed in the center and you go and bow before it. And um, then you get some prashad, which is a, it's equal parts flour, um, equal parts flour, butter, and sugar. So it's absolutely delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you eat that and you sit down and essentially you listen to hymns, the performance of hymns, and all the hymns come from the scripture. Our, our scripture is a book entirely made out of hymns. Everything that is in the scripture can be performed musically. And in fact, the scripture is organized musically. Hmm. Um, and in, in the accompanied class, or unaccompanied? I mean, is there that? is there instrumentation or is it a cappella yes. only with voice? There is instrumentation. Um, the we do not use the traditional. Most Godwaras are not using the traditional instruments. Um, a lot of Sikhs do not know that, <laughs> but um, the primary uh, instrument we do use the tra uh, traditional drum, the tabla, the tabla, and but then our melodic instrument is the harmonium, which is a European import. Um, and there have been modifications to it, so slightly different tunings and things like that, but it, it is essentially a European instrument. And so you will play on the harmonium and sing along. And usually there's a, there's three people performing on the stage at minimum. And so two harmonium players slash singers and then the tabla player. And then sometimes you'll have people in the back who are playing different little chimes or like a tam, excuse me, a tambourine and everyone's singing. And ideally the sangat or the congregation uh, should be singing along too. But as people go grow more and more self-conscious, that happens less and less. <laughs> mm, mm. There's a um, lot, there's a lot that's true of that in some Christian circles. The more the bigger sound from on stage and the more musicians, the less the congregation sings. Um right. interesting. And then is that true over here? Well, you probably don't know too much of what's being practiced over there, although you did visit not too long ago. Um is over that... in, in India? Yeah. Um, I, it's true over there as well. Huh, interesting. Because um, there's an issue where there is not any sort of officially sanctioned um, clergy in Sikhip, but increasingly um, people individuals are t taking more of a hands-off there, there there's a whole there's a whole bunch of issues <laughs> um, there there's a people as people get hands-off and take it less seriously what ends up developing is a de facto clergy class um which is why it's important to make sure that you're participating <laughs> and the clergy class ends up going off into um you there's a bunch of issues with a lot of the Godwaras. So a lot of my cousins are very cynical about the Godwara and they think that it's basically a business and that there's a lot of um, inner 
called a lot of politics and squabbling that happens. And so people get, you know, all the foibles of human nature. People get that never happened. That stuff never happens in churches. churches <laughs> yeah, are I'm just sure. Bastions <laughs> of peace, harmony, and unity all the time. Yeah. Bible study ladies never fight over the food. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, all those all those human problems of power, money, like that, that's happening over in the Goldwater too. Um, luckily, the Goldwater that I go to seems to be um, pretty decent in that respect. Um, there's not, because it is very much run by the people who attend the Goldwater. There's not, what, what will happen, especially in America and in the West, uh, is people will come the immigrants will come they'll start living their life then they'll build a goldwater and then then they start importing people from india to come run the goldwater ah so um like my my, my grandparents wouldn't necessarily because my grandparents are also uneducated my, my paternal grandparents never learned how to read either one of them wow. um, english or punjabi Wow. They're completely illiterate. Um, and yet successful enough to raise successful children. Yeah. And and own a home. Wow. Um, and I, they could read maybe singular words, but they're not reading sentences and documentation, right? Like my my mother, when she was a child, she was she, when she was like 10 years old. She was helping her parents do their taxes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and my dad, he, he eventually, you know, he learned how to read and my, my aunts and uncles did as well. And so then it was a real family affair to survive and make a living and establish themselves. Um, and it's just really admirable and, you know, you can't just help but be thankful for that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And be, and be tremendously impressed by them and their, right. their character and their courage and their tenacity. Um, but so what happens is people will come over and maybe you have one education educated person who comes over and gets the rest of the family over here, but then they're, but they know it's important to build a Godwara and to participate in Sikhi. So they will build it, but then they're like, we can't read the scripture or we don't feel qualified to do this thing. So then, oh, I know so-and-so back in India who's really knowledgeable and so we'll petition him to come over so that he can basically run the Godwara. And so, um, you know, that, that was better than nothing, but it has led to various situations of abuse um, in terms of, uh, you know, a, a grasp of power. Um, I, I should say that... Um, when you're talking about population centers, there's a huge Punjabi Sikh population in Canada. There's more of us in Canada than in America. Um, and this primarily centers around Vancouver and British Columbia and then Toronto. And uh, I, we would go visit family up in Canada. Uh, we have distant relatives up there in a town called Surrey. And <laughs> if oh, anybody yeah, yeah. knows about Surrey, yeah. there's a ton of Punjabi people. That Sometimes the street signs are written in Punjabi. <laughs> really? In Surrey, BC? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a Christian from church there. It's another... Oh, yeah. It, it's these... I mean, Canada, It's it, generally speaking, especially since the 70s and 80s, it's much easier to emigrate to Canada 
than yeah. than to the U.S. Yeah. Um, well, this is you see now now y'all who are watching this have an idea why I'm just so fascinated because Raj is just a, a wealth of information and stories and it's it's so interesting to me listening to all of these dynamics in terms of the the religion now is this is are your scriptures how, how is your scripture and translation it's not is it done in the original language or is it oh in the in the Gaudwater, it's always in the original language okay um so in the recently in the last 15 years or so um we've started to project um on so as the girthanis those are the people who perform girthan or the hymns as they're performing, uh, they will project onto a screen the the words in Punjabi, and then, um, well, it, so it's a little complicated. the The actual text is it's written in a Punjabi script, but it's a mixture of different languages. So there are, are several. Uh, different types of contributors to the scripture. The primary contributors are the gurus themselves. Guru Nanak, gurus one through five and nine. Um, but then there are these people called Bhagats. Um, Bhagat, the actual definition of the word has something to do with separate or sacred. Um, and so these are devotees. And the, there are Hindu Bhagats and M Muslim ones. There's one Muslim in Guru Granth Sabji, and that's a, a man named Bhagat uh, um, Farid, Farid. And so there's a mixture of different religious backgrounds that feed into the scripture. And then there are Sikhs themselves whose contributions have been put into the Bani or the scripture. And then, um, and they are those break down into two classes one is Sikhs who are speaking about um god directly a god or people talking the bops and they are talking about the gurus the human gurus and praising them hmm. um so it's a very interesting scripture because there's a lot of there's a lot of different languages happening in there. And that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to um, sort of parse out when, why someone who can't read is like, I don't know what's happening here. Yeah. Um, I could imagine. And, uh, but yet someone who can't read, who participates faithfully will probably be able to sing along even, you know, I mean, that's the way it goes with, I mean, the written, a right you know reading written text and participating vocally orally there's you know there's obviously overlap but people people do quite well without reading yes and there's also um like there there is enough of it where it is written written in what was the idiomatic language like the the, the local common tongue of the time but obviously being 500 years ago there's been drift so it's difficult for a modern day Punjabi speaker to necessarily 
make sense of the Punjabi in there. They people can do a decent job, but there is it's like reading Shakespeare, right? Um, but this is also one of the very interesting things about what the gurus did was they were writing in the common vernacular, um, which is completely contrary to the Indic system. Like uh, Hinduism, not there isn't really a Hinduism. There's it's a whole bunch of different religions. Um, but that focuses on sans Sanskrit and this sacred language that nobody speaks and that no one really understands, um, not even the people who are purporting to be um, explaining it, um, not in the way that, that you would your own vernacular tongue, at least. Um, so there is there's always this. Um, I wouldn't say always, but there's this turn towards the common person in Sikhi, which is central to the religion and which is challenges a lot of the orthodoxies in the various Indic religious systems, even even Buddhism, um, which makes use of sacred languages like Pali, which is what the Buddha probably spoke, but which nobody speaks anymore. Um, and what you see is it's actually very interesting because there, there's a second Granth. Granth means book, collection of books. It kind of means some, something similar to the Bible and um, that it's like a library. Um, but there's a second Granth written. There's con there's controversy and um, debate about the, the authorship of the second Granth, the Dasam Granth. And so it's supposed to be a lot of the texts are attributed to Guru Gobind Singh, the 10th and final human guru, or his court. Uh, so he had a bunch of poets and stuff. And what you see there is a turn to what's called Braj. And Braj is a um, sort of a sophisticated form <clears throat> of Hindi at the time. It's still a little bit um, of a vernacular language, but it's, it's a high, higher class one. And so you, what you see from the community is this transformation from this low class vernacular, like you see this transformation from slave to king over time. Wow. And it's, it's, so you see the story of Sikki through the evolution of language and it's, uh, it's just wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's get back to your. I mean, again, yeah. anybody watching this, I mean, this stuff just fascinates me. Culture, language, evolution of religion. I mean, all these things just just fascinate me. Well, get back to your story. So your parents meet, and you're okay. a you're a you're a you're a kid who is um, probably a little bit more interested in. The religion of your people than necessarily your peers um uh, how were you in high school okay so um so i grew up in washington so i was the i think my high school was 97 urban or a farming in a farming community or urban community suburban suburban um, okay yeah uh I, do you know where tacoma is yeah yeah, so I was right on the other side of the bridge from Tacoma. Okay. Um, so Western Washington in the Puget Sound, 97% of my school was white demographically. Um, um, never never 
uh, experienced any racism or discrimination or anything like that which was uh, when I got to college and everyone was speaking all their woke stuff. I was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> People have been very nice to me my whole life. You didn't say, come on, it, as, a, as a kid, I was I was fighting the fight. Right. <laughs> um, although it is important to note, um, I didn't grow up wearing this. This is a relatively recent uh, development right. for me. Right. Um, you so weren't wearing were... it when we met. No, I wasn't. This is something that it's happened um, really in the last six months or so, but it's been a gradual thing over the last year and a half. Um, See, all those people that say Paul Vanderclay is a terrible evangelist, they're going to point <laughs> See, he went to the estuary and he started wearing that thing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I didn't, I wasn't marked out. I mean, the skin color marked me out as other, but I didn't have this other religious thing that marked me out as other. Um, but so in high school, I was a band kid. Uh, started I was started band in sixth grade I've been playing piano since I was five so I've always like music has been a very big part of my life what, what are you doing Sunday morning we need a pianist uh, I I'm busy at the Goldwater playing doing <laughs> the, the gear thing over there <laughs> uh, all right okay I'll look <laughs> elsewhere go on um and so uh band was really really big part of my life and I was also I've always been a, I've always been smart. Um, I, you know, it's just what it is. School was never really a challenge for me. And um, until I got to algebra two, <laughs> um, I, I missed a couple of steps in geometry and, you know, that throws off your whole thing for math. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was never really interested enough to go back and actually figure it out properly. Um and then uh, AP chemistry was also a very difficult class for me. Um, I think I got a one on that AP test. <laughs> um, but the, those were things where I, I was a very smart kid, but because of that, I didn't need the discipline necessary to get the uh, grades that I could have got. I could have gotten a 4.0 if I was more put together and less, less lazy. Um, so, so in other words, you're not an immigrant, you're an American. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're pinching oh the pennies and you don't have some big tract of land in the Central Valley today. And uh, this has uh, caused a lot of friction between my dad and I when I was in high school. He's like, why are you such a crazy people? I brought, <laughs> I brought you to this country so you could thrive. And now in the lap of luxury, right. this is what you do. Exactly. Um, but um, even with, uh, I had a solid group of friends. Um, started with them in middle school and then it was a group of about there's a core group of us of four of us from middle school and then in high school we had a few more guys from the other middle school to our group and all of us were band kids and uh you know we got into typical high school hijinks um we were super excited about getting our driver's license we were listening to the music you shouldn't listen to and all that stuff um that was a big part of my identity as a as a teenager was uh sort of that hipster thing finding the obscure music the the bad music and like sharing it with my friends and feeling now, a when great you say bad music you mean was was this sort of i mean what was the what was the scandalous music or your group or scandalous just in general for scandalous just in general things like okay. eminem um odd future if you 
Um, yeah, I'm an old guy. I, yeah. I don't know. So it's like I barely know who Eminem is, and I don't. Right. You know, I don't know who Odd Future was. Yeah. So someone like, in the comment section will though. Um, <laughs> like songs where the choruses kill people, burn shit, fuck school, <laughs> music like that. <laughs> well, I, you know, back when I was young, it was Twisted Sister. We're not going to take it. This sounds like a whole right. nother level. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really dark stuff. Um, and then I went through essentially what I would consider a period of depression my sophomore year of high school. Um, <clears throat> I... We had a lot of rain that year. So Washington, there's always a lot of rain, but that year we almost broke the record for consecutive consecutive days of rain. Oof. <laughs> this is like um I don't know why people live there. Nate Hile. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter. Um, is she up there? <laughs> My daughter's up there now, yeah. <laughs> One of them. So uh that I'm sure contributed to it. And but then you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Um at that age, I had discovered internet pornography. That that was really tough. That was very difficult. Um, and um, also, um, I, I never really wanted for anything as a kid. My parents were very successful. And so um, there's a little bit of this like a Buddha thing that happens where you're like in the palace and then you realize that the world is full of suffering <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm just going to lay here and die, I guess. <laughs> and I think also sophomore year of high school is when the dark Knight came out. Um, oh. The Batman movie. Yeah. And I loved the Joker. Interesting. I was like, like I was obsessed with that character. Um, I remember trying to like, I was acting not like, I wasn't acting like him in day-to-day life, but, um, you know, I, I would watch him and then I would like try to try to replicate Heath Ledger's performance, maybe by myself, like privately or whatever. But um, I, I love that character. He, he absolutely fascinated me. Huh. Um, and then I read <clears throat> Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, which is a... Um, Batman story that centers around the Joker. Um, the premise in that story is that a man, a- any ma- man can be corrupted by a day that's bad enough. And so if you experience a bad day, you a really bad day, you will become a bad person. And so what um, the Joker tries to do in that is uh, drive Commissioner Gordon to the bad side. And so he shoots Commissioner Gordon's daughter, paralyzes her, um, strips her naked, takes pictures of her, and then uh, sends Commissioner Gordon to this carnival funhouse where he tortures him, shows the pictures of his naked, bleeding daughter. Um, and he's basically trying to um, make Commissioner Gordon, trying to corrupt him. Because Wow. This, story... this was not the Adam West Batman that I watched <laughs> in the 1970s on TV. This was not it. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, Alan Moore is also the man who wrote Watchmen. So yes, he's, yes. yeah. Um, so then, yeah, so that was, um, I was reading that and thinking about these questions. Um, and then 
there was in the version that I had, there was a short little story at the end of the main story, which was actually written by the illustrator of the killing joke. And essentially his premise and his, it's only like six or seven pages long, but like this, his premise fascinated me and gripped me. And it was, how do I know I'm a good person if I've never done anything bad? And he's like, I need to do, he was, he was, so he, the story goes that the character is having fantasies of doing really bad things. And his conclusion is I need to do one of these really bad things in order to figure out whether I like it or not. Wow. And if I like it, that means I'm a bad person. And if I don't like it, that means I'm a good person. And so then I was prepared with the mute. Like I was really in the realm of the demonic at this time. (laughs) Holy cow, Raj. This video took a dark turn. Keep going. (laughs) So then I would have these fantasies about like maybe doing something really evil. Um, But (laughs) I guess I have never read Crime and Punishment. So I'm going to but I do know the rough story. So um, I was experiencing the punishment of the crime without doing it, like the guilt and the shame, like it was already coming at me um, just by spending time contemplating these things. Um, And I guess actually I should back up back to elementary school. Uh, I'm a big time reader um, since a young age. Um, I don't remember a time before reading I learned how to read very young um maybe I was I started reading by like three or something like that um and so uh before the American spirit really gripped grabbed hold you were still mom and dad (laughs) mom and dad they basically homeschooled me while I was in public school like I, I was already reading and doing like I had my numbered literacy up before I got there and then before I got to kindergarten. And I think in first grade, they were buying me these homeschool workbooks from Costco. And so I was like doing, I had to do all the school work and then come home and do third grade work while I was still. <laughs> and they didn't do any of that for my sister. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, ah, the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so in elementary school, I've always had a fascination with history. I remember reading all the uh, those eyewitness and DK books that we had about Rome and Greece. And I, I don't know where this came from. But I was like, it's basically like a crash course in like Western civilization, like from the get go. <laughs> and then also World War II. World War II is huge. Um I read all the books I could about World War II. And I was really into the Holocaust since like elementary school. Not like, like, I want to know what happened there. Right, right, right. right. I, <laughs> I understand that part. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I, there was a few Holocaust narrative books that I remember reading. Um, and I can't find those books since, but it was a, uh, and it really fascinated me because of how it was actually juxtaposed in my mind between what happened to the Sikhs. Because <clears throat> in middle school, 
one of my favorite teachers, she was talking about the Holocaust and how Hitler just wanted to exterminate the Jews. And even though I had read a bunch of books about the Holocaust, I was like, he, I was confused. Was like, he didn't want to convert them. Because mm. like that was like, whenever we got genocide, it was like, give up your religion and join our religion. But like Hitler just wanted to get rid of them. And I was like, that really hit me when I was about 12 years old. I was like, that is something else. Wow. That's <clears throat> interesting. Um, and so, yeah, uh, back to high school. Sophomore year was dark, but I did have a good group of friends. Um, I did get into self-harm for a little bit, but it was a short-lived period. And then um, junior year was a lot better. I joined uh, Knowledge Bowl. Some people might know it as Quiz Bowl. Um, that was run by the drama teacher slash AP US history teacher. He, he was a great man. Um, I still can like see some of the lectures that he gave us in my head because he was the drama teacher and he would act them out. And um, so that was really cool. That was also <clears throat> when I entered into a relationship with my first girlfriend. So that you know, made me feel better. <laughs> yeah. Girlfriends are great. Yeah. <laughs> um, Until <and> they're then... not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, uh, then we moved away my senior year of high school and I got the band teacher where I ended up going was really serious about band. And um, bordering on the tyrannical. <laughs> I, I used to have dreams about fighting him, physically oh, wow. fighting him. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and I came from a very like loosey goose. So I came from like people in Washington. They're kind of hippie, even if they're not hippie. Yeah. Yeah. Even that's the them. rednecks have this like. <laughs> yep. Don't yep. describe rednecks. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Washington rednecks are really interesting. <laughs> you know, again, yeah. reference Nate Heil. He's he's got that vibe to him too, to, to a degree. Nerdy, thinky, talky, redneckish. You know, that's yeah, that's Washington State, Pacific Northwest. It's fascinating. We had a kid at our school. Uh, he had a pet pig. <laughs> And he used to sleep with the pig. And this kid smelled nasty. Oh. <laughs> he smelled horrible. Oh. It's one thing to have a pet pig. It's another thing to sleep with them. Although they say pigs are very clean, but maybe not in that case. Um, <laughs> he was also in band. He was a good kid. His mom was a band mom. And she was she, she was a, she was a really good, good lady. Um, but yeah, so I left there ended up in this other in clovis i don't know if you know about yeah clovis. i know where clovis is so clovis is um they're not hippie <laughs> no 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 different kind of rednecks in the central valley yeah but it's also a lot more buttoned up a lot more professional lot, people who you get more of that the parents taking school more serious than the kids mm. syndrome going on there mm. um like really high pressure place. When my sister was a junior, she went to the same high school. Um, when my sister was a junior, there's a string of suicides at the school. Oh my. Yeah. Like I think four or five kids killed themselves her junior year. Oh no. Yeah. That's oh. it's one of these kinds of ultra competitive 
um, academic, extracurricular, sports, competitive. Like the people who were killing, like uh, the first one was the star star football player. Yeah. Oh, that's really bad because that yeah. I mean that, that's when it gets contagious. Mm -hmm. Human beings are strange. This very. The, how contagious we are but um <clears throat> so i went from this i mean i my first band teacher he was there my freshman and sophomore year he wanted us to strive for excellence yeah but he also knew that this was a ragtag band that didn't really you know we we're no one was taking care of the program until he got there then he ended up leaving for a phd program my junior year and we got this new guy and he was pretty laid back like um that same striving for excellence but it was not at the same level. Okay. I, I recognize that definitely. Yeah. Um, but uh, he, you know, he still wanted us to play good music and stuff like that. It wasn't a complete um, letting go. But then this guy down in Clovis, he's like, all the trophies were on the wall. We got a win, win, win. <laughs> um, he told me something really fascinating. He was always into marching band and he didn't understand the beauty of concert music until like his last year of college. <laughs> wow. Was, well, that was something as someone who was really struck by the beauty of music that didn't make it like, it was primarily about the competition for him. My oldest boys did. So Jared, you know, Jared, cause he comes mm -hmm. to the meetup. My oldest boys did basketball. Okay. And then my net, then I had, I had I boy, boy, girl, girl, boy. And so then the next three did band. And um, I had never, I had no, experience of marching band at all didn't have marching band in high school or college and then just all of the uh, the whole marching band thing it was like it was a revelation to my wife and i we're like holy cow they take this seriously and these mm -hmm. kind these competitions are big big things and you know it's really fun once we got into it but it's a whole nother world yeah and we we were starting to enter in that world back in washington but this they were in it like they, they, this school had their own semi-truck um <clears throat> and so um i was just and added with all of the angst that came along with just one being a teenager but then new school and all this stuff your senior um, year yeah you, was, you just make it to the top of the hierarchy and now you're at the bottom of the you know it's not good um and then there was also an insecurity and inadequacy thing because the striving for excellence was so much greater that i was being outperformed and so yeah. that didn't feel good either um yeah. so, but then um at the semester mark i left and like i ended up having a fight with this this teacher uh i left the band program i stayed at the school um my cousin died of stomach cancer and he told me you have more than one cousin yeah Cause I wasn't going to be able to go to the competition. Yeah. Wow. So I left at the that, semester. That's mark. pretty hardcore. I, I left at the semester mark and I made a stink about it. And about eight other kids left the program too. Oh, I, I, um, if, if, if a band teacher told, told that to one of my kids, I I I put I put the fear of God into a vice principal once at my kid's high school. That guy knew I was coming for him because he um, he I mean some of he, yeah. he did he did not want me in the building. Anyway, we go. I digress. Keep going. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so then I didn't, I was like, I'm only going to be here for the school. I'm not going to make friends. Like that was my attitude. Yeah. I, I had one kind of friend, um, an acquaintance. I would, and then I would just like walk around in circles at lunchtime. And then I would, I would do my thing, do, get all my school stuff done, get my grades up. And then, um, without band, um, my second semester, I had eighth period free. So I got to leave school early. Um, and then I, at this time, I, I, that my girlfriend from high school, we had actually kept up as a long-term as a long distance relationship. Wow. And she was a year older than me and she went off to college. And then I was applying to schools and I applied to where she was, um, obviously. And then that happened to be the best school that I got into. Um, so I ended up going there and then, um, my freshman year there and her sophomore year, we were together and we broke up at the end of my freshman year. Oh my. Um, and then the Bard as much as, so I went to Bard college, uh, upstate New York, well, not upstate Hudson Valley. Um, <clears throat> and, um, very dramatic place went there at the height of like the birth of woke and all that stuff. And, um, people were doing all sorts of crazy things. There were several race hoax events happen on campus. Um, people were calling for violent revolution. Uh, the whole trans non-binary thing. I saw all of that stuff bu bubble up and like, I, I saw everything that we're seeing now in sort of, uh, public life I saw five years before so when it started happening I was like oh this is interesting like none of this is surprising to me I know all of these things but um um it was interesting to see that it broke up broke into public life um and then my first my freshman year was pretty low-key I was hanging out with my girlfriend at the time and a lot of her friends and then I was enjoying my classes I went in as a music major and um, but I really loved one thing that I love about Bard is their FISM program, first year seminar. It's essentially a great books course. And yeah, they didn't drop that for the woke stuff, huh? No. Although they did uh, repeatedly try to influence what books were being taught <clears throat> because the curriculum was too many dead white men. Um, although I am, my professor was the person who designed the FISM curriculum with one other professor who's a woman. And my professor is uh, Professor Weston, um, Robert Weston. And uh, he, he's a very gay man. <laughs> very. <laughs> but he's also perhaps the most educated man that I've ever met. A legitimate polyglot, um, reads Dante in the Middle Italian, reads the Quran in Arabic, reads Plato in Greek, like wow. absolute powerhouse of an intellect. Um, yeah. And he self-describes, self-described radical Marxist feminist. Um, so he, he kind of laid a foundation for a lot of this woke stuff. But by the end of my time there, he was starting to realize, hey, maybe this is not the way we want to be going because he had a freshman girl come into his office crying about how racist she is even though she's like this sweet little girl just got to school and he's like oh this is off the rail. <laughs> that's the benefit of being older you get all these yeah little white girls running around talking about how racist they are and it's like i've known really racist people right. and 
that's not really you. I, I think he <laughs> I think he grew up in Louisiana. So like Yeah, so he really <laughs> knew racists. <laughs> yeah. Um but he I mean I got to walk through the classics of the Western canon with this man. And um he didn't and he he didn't have an agenda. Like, I think he wanted to get to the agenda part, but first he was like, no, 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 we have to read and reconstruct the argument, guys. And kids wanted to go in and start critiquing right away. Like, you don't even know what they're saying. <laughs> um, so, it, we, like, he had a, he's an excellent professor, and he was very much like, first you got to reconstruct the argument before you can criticize it. Um, and he, he was like, he, he had... He considered his FISM curriculum the most radical curriculum that the school has taught. Um, but part of his radicalness was he, this was something he did not get on the curriculum. We ended up reading Augustine's Confessions, but he wanted us to read City of God. Um, <laughs> and then they're like, no, you can't have freshmen read City of God. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so he was a, he was really, um, I took both semesters of FISM with him. I did that intentionally. I knew about him before I'd gotten there because my girlfriend had had him the year before and he just sounded like a fascinating character. And then my final semester there, I took what is essentially FISM 2. Um, it's a class that he calls Defining the Human. Hmm. And he had noticed that it's really difficult to define what a human being is. Yeah. <laughs> um. And then freshman doing all my little freshman stuff. Sophomore year starts. Uh, girlfriend and I had broken up. That made me real sad. Um, even though it was for the best, we broke up. And then was your girlfriend C? No. Okay. Uh, she's a white girl. White girl. Okay. Yeah. Uh, half Norwegian, half Croatian. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Dad was not happy about it. <laughs> um, I'm so sorry, son. You broke up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and then uh, um sophomore year is when i had i used psychedelics for the first time oh and that was a psychedelics in the story too <laughs> that was a major major thing that um major impact on my life hmm um, and now I need to back up back to middle school. Middle school is when I discovered music, like listening to music on my own. And I don't know what it is about my mind, but it's, I like there's this admiration for great greatness and this um, and recognize greatness. So I started listening to music. I was like, who's the greatest guitar player of our, all time? Oh, Jimi Hendrix. So I started there. And then the Jimmy just blew the lid off the top of my head. And I was like, whatever he was doing, I got to experience that. So I knew since I was like 12 years old that I was going to do psychedelics at some point, just because I love 1960s music so much. Huh. Um, <clears throat> I love 1960s music at some point. Clearly not as much as you, because I never <laughs> said to myself, I'm going to do psychedelics at some point. I grew up and I, I grew up surrounded by drug addicts. And so right. it was abundantly clear to me. The last thing I was going to do was drugs because I was watching what was happening. <laughs> right. 
I did not grow up around drug addicts. And then also there is an attitude. My parents were very much like, don't ever do drugs, right? Like that was definitely beat into me. Um, but my, I, I'm very open. You know this about me. Um, I probably, I score like in the 99 percentile. And then Jordan Peterson always talks about this thing where if you use psychedelics and you have a certain kind of experience, then you're one standard deviation even more open and that happened to me too so it's like i i <laughs> i really like chesterton and there's a great chesterton quote i mean everything he says is eminently quotable but um you want your mind to be open but not so open that you that it falls out <laughs> um, that was a big danger with me <laughs> which is why i have to attach it securely right. <laughs> keep, the, keep the mind in there yeah um but yeah, I just, I always knew. And then another thing when it came to music was, okay, 1964 is when rock and roll started, like the British, the whole thing. And so then I just start from 64. What are the best albums from 1964? What are the best albums from 1965? And I just did like this historical study of pop music, basically. Um, and then, yeah, so I had that experience. And then what that ended up doing for me was, um, one, it made me a... I didn't um, meet or experience any sort of entities. Like I never really understood that whole entity thing, but I was, a, I did ex have this experience of um, permeating presence. Hmm. And so <clears throat> all I know is after I, and I did it by myself and I went into the woods like I knew and I started by listening wow. to like um, <laughs> some hippie music and like some Jesus freak music. Like there's this band called the Trees Community. They're just like hippie Jesus freaks. <laughs> and Because um, I knew that uh, like set and setting were very important. And I yeah. was like, I'm not going to get this. Not a, I was very serious about it. This is You're not a, a sophomore in college, right? Yeah. Yeah. OK. So I'm about 19. Um, And so <clears throat> and then. You're pretty precocious. <laughs> Go on. I'm sorry. And so I um, went to the woods and I was out there for a while. I came back, started like looking at people. It was eventually I started interacting with my friends again. Um, and then there was this peak experience um, where. The only way I can describe it is I felt like I was in the womb of humanity. And then there was like this portal thing. And I was convinced that if I went through it, I would be born as a different person. Absolutely convinced. Hmm. And then um, I was thinking of going through it. I don't know if I could or whatever, but um, then I was like, but what happens to my sister? And I didn't. Because hmm. um, I was like, if this, if it is true that I'm going to become a different person going through that, who's going to be there for my sister? Mm -hmm. and my sister's five years younger than me i absolutely adore her um and uh she's one of the best people i know and um <clears throat> but yeah so i didn't end up going through this border or whatever it was but all i knew is that after that i was like i need to start taking classes about religion like that was my conclusion from that because mm -hmm. i was like i need to know what that was but i knew that like, I think a lot of people go through that experience and then 
their way of trying to understand it is like, oh, I'm going to go become a chemist. And I was not like, and then um, <clears throat> the next uh, semester, there was a class um, that was all about mystical experience. And then I was actually um, Mercia Eliotti. Yep. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I started reading Eliotti. Um, I, I majored in religion. Um, and I, I got onto that whole sort of symbolism kick before I ran into Peterson and Peugeot, um, mostly through Eliotti. And then I actually, um, I think my second paper for that class about mystical experience was about a psychedelic trip. And I analyzed it using Eliotti. Uh, I got an A on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like my professor, he is an old hippie himself. So it's like, uh, I think his son did psychedelics when he was 12. <laughs> And he left uh, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception on his dad's uh, pillow. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. A very, very odd place. Um, not something like the experience I've gone through. It's definitely not something I want for my kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, it is what it, I mean, that's what happened. So, yeah. Um, and then I think going into one of my friends from freshman year told me you're not going to be a music major by the time you leave this place because you're too academically inclined and i was like, whatever and then um i changed my major to religious studies and um he was right i'm also not disciplined enough to be a craft musician like the other kids who were in the music program like one of my good friends he lives down in long beach he's a, he's a legit session player like he put, he started learning a new instrument in his freshman year and he put in the hours every single day. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, but it was a real, well, uh, it was a real blessing changing my major to religious studies, not only because of the education but also because of the professors i came in contact with because i didn't have a bunch of professors who were trying to fill the god-shaped hole in their heart with politics hmm. Hmm. um so i got a real education from those people and one of the great things about the bard education is that um and i guess the liberal arts education in general is that it teaches you to challenge your own assumptions about what you think um, but the problem with that is while is that while you challenge your own assumptions, you become incredibly unmoored. And so if you're not um, aiming towards something else, it's very easy for you to become ideologically possessed, like so many of the classmates that I saw. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> and so if you have a bunch of people who are teaching you to challenge your own assumptions and then they're filling it with ideology, it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. Luckily, that was not the case for me. Um I had people who were interested in actually seeing me using my brain and um, cultivating my writing skills. Um, so that was good. And then also in sophomore year, I met a, a my friend, Ethan. We were on this channel together. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> he's super disagreeable. But he's also <laughs> very liberal. He's... Um, very much on the left wing of things when it comes to politics and everyone thought he was an incredible horrible racist misogynist person <laughs> because he was calling out all the um 
fallacies and all of the logical thinking that was happening on campus. Um, so then that whole sort of battle with woke consumed junior and senior year, uh, basically. And then um, after that, I my senior year, I did my senior at Bard. You have to write a senior thesis. Um, has to be a pretty substantive piece of writing. Mine ended up being around like 90 pages or so. Wow. Um, and I ended up writing it about Guru Nanak. And um, the, the first, there's in three chapters. The first chapter was about a little bit of biography. Second one was, <laughs> so I can't believe I did this now looking back, but it was a commentary on Japji Saab, which is like the most arrogant thing I could have ever done. <laughs> um, well, you're in college. It's yeah. full of arrogance. <laughs> and then the third one was um, just kind of like trying to make sense of the whole thing philosophically with everything else that I was reading at the time. And I became greatly influenced by Martin Buber and his book, mm -hmm. I Thou. Yeah. And um also, um, they had a series of, they were starting to realize that something was going wrong on campus. And so uh, we have the Hannah Arendt Center. Hannah Arendt was a political yeah. um, philosopher. She taught at Bard for years. She's actually oh. married there. Um, so we would go visit her grave and stuff like that. And uh, But because of that, there's the Hannah Arendt Center. And a lot of people who are aware of the patterns of totalitarianism because her magnum opus is the origin of totalitarianism. Right. And uh, um, the Arendt Center was noticing all this woke stuff going on. And then one of the initiatives put on by the college was a series of courses that were to be designated under an umbrella category of the courage to be. And the central book that we all had to read, if you were in any one of those uh, classes was Tillich's Courage to Be. And that book was like, like these ontological arguments he was making, like uh, it's been a real while since I read it, but like what he was talking about was a complete revelation to me. This whole notion of the ground of be. And it felt like what I had been chasing and experiencing or but I became aware of since that um, ex that psychedelic experience. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, I was trying to make sense of what's happening in Gurbani and it was greatly influenced by Buber and Tillich and these sorts of thinkers. And then graduated, went to grad school. Um, also got, I got my MA in religious studies, excuse me. Um, wrote my master's thesis on American civil religion. <clears throat> and there's a, the second chapter actually goes into this whole um, digression sort of against Judith Butler. Uh, Cause I, I tried to analyze Lincoln from this gender perspective <laughs> as this like model of masculinity. And um, one of the things that you notice about Judith Butler is that she thinks that social construction is completely arbitrary but if you read the actual like peter l berger who and i forget the other guy's name but peter l berger is this uh scholar of religion and he's he came up with the term social construction and he says it's not arbitrary like it's there's rules and um it, it has it still has meaning 
is a big part of Berger's whole argument. Maybe this is where meaning comes from. He doesn't really um, put an answer on that, but it is meaningful. And so Butler talks about how gender is socially constructive and that's why it can be essentially arbitrary. And so they're always wanting to argue against the essentialists, but it's like, that's the most essentialist thing. Like for Butler, the only way gender could be meaningful is if it was biologically essential. Um, and so I kind of do this little thing where I use Butler to kind of defeat herself. And then I move her out of the way and um, talk about something called ubiquitous manhood. This is great book. by talk about what? Ubiquitous manhood. Ubiquitous manhood. Great uh, anthropological survey by a guy named Gilmore. <clears throat> and basically he says that manhood has a ubiquitous form across the globe, which emphasizes man's role as protector, provider, and procreator. And the only places where this is not the case is one example is Tahiti. And then he gives a second example, but I forget what he said, what, where that is right now. And um, basically he says in these situations, the reason why manhood looks so different is because the environment is so abundant that you don't need that ubiquitous manhood. And so like when the environment is cushy enough, then you don't need to be a man essentially, which is like America. Of, yeah. Which <laughs> explains a lot of modernity. Um, and then, but like Abraham Lincoln, super masculine. And Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know, chopping logs, wrestling, yep. wrestling, all that stuff. Yep. Um, and so I, I explore all this, and this is also when I start to get an inkling of this idea that violence is how I've brought this up at estuary meetings. Violence is where object objectivity enters the social realm, and um without violence then you cannot objectively define things socially and the one thing that i have learned now that i am teaching at a jail is that no one in jail believes that um, um reality is subjective but everyone in the arts college did and i think the level of violence in people's lives has a big influence on this <laughs> same same with the homeless the yeah. same with the homeless people don't realize how much violence is on the streets but yeah the, the, the homeless get it very objective uh so yeah I, I did my master's there and then graduated was substitute teaching for a while down in los angeles and then moved to sacramento to be here with my grandmother um in her last years which was it's not my idea that was something that came to me through prayer and um it listened and uh probably the best decision i ever made hmm. um and then I just finished up with my teaching credentialing program. So hopefully by the fall, I'll have my own well, elementary school classroom. <laughs> also, I love kids. I've always loved kids since I was, since I was a kid. <laughs> like, <laughs> Why elementary school with, I mean, you, you've got all this fascination with all this heady stuff and, um, and you're gonna, you're gonna spend time with, you know, in very basic things. You do um, also teach in the jail, though. So that's, yeah. I mean, we can talk about that a little bit. Um, but um, elementary school, one, I think I would enjoy high school more, part of me. Um, I did substitute in high school for a year as an English teacher. Um, but I do have 
certain professional ambitions. Um, I do think that I am more of a strategist than a down in the trenches kind of guy. So I think okay. eventually I'd like to move into administration. I, I don't know because I don't know what that is like. Um, that's my suspicion right now. And if I enjoyed the classroom experience too much, maybe that would not, I might become too comfortable there in order to pursue those other ambitions. But also there are reasons why I want to be in an elementary school classroom. I, most of, almost all of my teaching experience has been in title one schools. Um, yep. And you should explain what that means for people outside the U S title one schools are the schools in the, uh, in the, in areas, then low socioeconomic areas. Yeah. And so they get government funding, yeah. uh, federal funding. Yeah. They get special funding yeah. for support um, programs, free lunches. Yeah. So it's like in like. these schools, all the kids get free breakfast and free lunch. Um, most of them don't even need to um, buy their own supplies. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, there's plenty of stuff in the, culture right now which denigrates manhood and things like this and a lot of these kids also don't have a lot of positive male role models in their life or any male role models in their life and so um, having a big bearded man walking around school is probably good for them <laughs> you can invite me to your school so i can just walk around with yeah. a big bearded man yes <laughs> it's santa claus <laughs> Oh, I got to make sure to put a hat on you, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm like, I have this, I, I'm very excited to get married and have kids when that happens, uh, working on marriage part. Um, but he's available, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> um, not that not that this channel, although, you know, we had some success in the discords, but uh yeah, 80, 87% male to female watcher ratio on this channel. Right. So kind of a guy space. Um, but uh, I, I have this real, real urge to, I mean, you got to be careful with this kind of thing because I have a real urge to father, right? And like, um, you have to be careful. Like, you can't really go around fathering other people's kids, right? Like, I understand that. But um, there is a, you know, just being able, and also understanding what's happening, with boys. That's really important in the yeah. school system right now. Yeah. Because yeah. When you have ninety percent of the faculty and administration as women, and they don't understand what's happening with boys. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I think I would probably enjoy high school more, but I probably more needed it in elementary school. Yeah. Um. And then also, it's just. I like talking to kids. I love what's going great. on in their head. <laughs> kids are great. I mean, they're yeah. so, they can be just so unvarnished. They will tell you exactly what they think and believe. And, I, um, I had a student uh, while I was student teaching. He asked me, one day he asked me if I was Italian because of my mustache. <laughs> then he asked me if I was French because of my mustache. And then on the third day, he said, Mr. Singh, are you evil? <laughs> I said, why? <laughs> He's like, because your mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not evil. <laughs> he, he didn't. He didn't see any of the rest of it, huh? Just, no, the, mustache. just the mustache. Yeah. Oh, kids, kids. Um, Maybe talk a little bit about because when you first started coming to the estuary meetings, I mean, you. So you've had. You've been. Um, I don't know. You've you've been turning into your religious heritage quite a bit more over the last few years. What's what's that about? 
Okay, so um, the I was always having this journey towards religion and God since that sort of psychedelic experience. Even before that, though, having read some of the things that I wrote in high school, um, I would write about music as this religious experience. Like I, I framed it as such explicitly in this paper I wrote my senior year of high school. Um, and um, so that's always been like I, this, the donning the sarup, the form of the guru is always, there's always been a pull to this my entire life. Hmm. Um, but there's a whole bunch of things you, you have a whole bunch of, reasons why one you just you want to keep doing stuff you shouldn't be doing <laughs> and i wasn't gonna wear this while i was still doing that stuff yeah yeah and then um It'd really stand out yeah and also it's disrespectful to the form yeah. um and then uh another thing and you just have your own sense of not feeling worthy right your own sort of demons that you got to figure out and then I was doing this thing where I was trying to stand outside of the traditions and like survey all of them and like exploring each one a little bit. Um, so that was like, let me, with the drug thing, my parents were like, don't do drugs, don't do drugs. But it was like, but why? And no one like, cause it's dangerous. It's like, we do dangerous stuff all the time. Um, and so I had to go figure that out for myself. And then it's like, you, you don't do drugs because drugs are a lie. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you don't do drugs because they distort everything. Yeah. Um, and so and you want to live in the truth. And um, so as I was, I spent a while in college going to Buddhist monastery, not like as a practitioner, I was doing the ethnography there. I was dating a girl at, in college, my second girlfriend, and she was into Buddhism, although she came from a Jewish background. Um, and then <clears throat> um those jewish buddhists are the worst jubus there's an actual Jub term for them. no is there really <laughs> yeah jubu jubus oh my <laughs> like i'm gonna get in so much trouble with jacob <laughs> um no I, I, there's a book that i read it was about a a, um, a jewish man meeting with the dalai lama and he was self-described jubu jubu oh, yeah um, but yeah so i was but then, you know, the whole no self-emptiness thing is a real drag. <laughs> and um, there's part of the, there's something to that insecurity, but it's not, you don't get rid of yourself to manifest emptiness. You get rid of yourself to manifest the guru, God, right? And that's there in Buddhism. Like, it's not as fatalistic as some people want to think it is. Like, once you empty yourself, then what arises spontaneously is the Buddha nature, hmm. um, which is um, defined by compassion. But compassion isn't narrowly confined or defined like how Peterson thinks it is. In Buddhism, compassion really is love. Hmm. Um, like, <clears throat> there's stories of buddhist masters beating their students out of compassion hmm. um so then yeah that happened and then being 
uh, Peterson rocked my world, you know, as most people at the estuary. And then Peugeot also um, very much rocks my world. <laughs> um, and then I, I came home and I just knew. What it's what turned me to take. I knew I had to take a religion more seriously hmm. because I saw what was happening in the broaden culture. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this thing is barely being held together and nothing that we're going to figure out secularly is going to be able to hold it together. Um, and that might just be an intuition, but I think it's also borne out by what I learned at college through my, uh, through the education I received there. Um, and I also was just noticing that a lot of this woke stuff, especially a lot of the gender stuff is people talking about their soul, but they don't have language to talk about their soul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, 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 the public society is totally soul. Nobody has a soul. Right. Yeah. But my secret sacred self is this and I must express it. And right. it's uniquely me. Well, then why is it contagious? And what? <laughs> I, I don't know. In Christianity, the soul is not gendered, is it? We, I, I, I nobody has ever asked me that question. I, I'd never, I'd never thought of it at all. Um, you don't stop being a male or a female in the age to come. I'll say it that way. Okay. But it's it's not something that I have given two thoughts about right. my whole life. So the, it just shows it's just not on the radar. And Sikhi, God is, well, God is beyond gender, but the soul is also genderless. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, like the, the distinction between man and female is very much there. But um, like in Sikhi, so there's a cost concept. This is similar in some Hindu religions of Atman and Para Atman. And so soul and super soul. Hmm. And so essentially um, there's the super soul, which is God. And then little pieces of that soul are in everybody. And so the nature right. of God is, is your true nature. Um, and so the soul is explicitly without gender. Hmm. And so when people talk about them being non-binary, I was like, Duh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... No, and in you know, it's, it's, it's so funny because I've I've never even thought of the question because again, when Jesus, because because Christianity thinks about resurrection, Jesus didn't come back. I could label. I could title this video. Jesus did not resurrect as a hermaphrodite or right. as a non-binary. <laughs> He, when Jesus rose out of the tomb, he was a dude. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's so funny because my whole life long, I, I'd never even thought at all about that question. Again, probably again, just because of resurrection. Because mm -hmm. um, that's, that's like something that I've learned since I was a little kid. Huh. Because it's that part of you, that thing that's inside of you is the same thing as God. Yeah. And so See, that that's would be quite different from Christianity too. Right. Because that line between God, creation and creator 
is quite a bit. Yeah, firm. it's more solid. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Siki, it's um, a thinner line. There is still a level of distinction, but like the goal is to the the way theosis works is you're slowly kind of trying to erase that line. Um, Interesting. And whether you can actually do that fully, you know, that's a whole different thing. But um, the the idea is that the guru was was perfect. So like that like guru and God are one. And so whether that means <clears throat> the guru is God in flesh or like it's, whatever guru does is the same thing as what God does. Because okay. that that uh, um, line has been. So maybe we can switch a little bit to sure. okay uh i don't know another 15 minutes or so otherwise i can't go full joe rogan because yeah. i don't have joe rogan's money <laughs> there's other things i need to do <laughs> um so in well i guess we can divert a little bit into the scripture but the short answer is i i turned to this because i realized if i don't take up this duty then everything's gonna fall apart and it still probably will fall apart but like at least i can try something okay <laughs> um and maybe like i can be a repository for my family who's largely secular at this point okay um well it's hard they're not going regularly they still know it's important to go and they still will go when there's a family function but like people aren't necessarily engaging with the scripture and stuff like that so like, what did your family think uh, what does your family think about what you're doing? Um, excuse me. I don't know what my cousins think. Um, we haven't really talked about it. So I don't know what anyone in my generation thinks. Everyone in the older, they're like, oh, so good. Like, that's great. Like, at least someone's doing it. Um, but it's also like, it feels a little empty at times mm. from the extended family. Like, like, it's good and they're saying it's good, but because they know that they should say it's good. Got it. Um and then my, my kind of like in some families when someone decides to become a minister oh that's really good and they're thinking in the background you're not gonna have any money um you might get weird and yeah. <laughs> part of it yeah um and then my dad is happy in the sense of um i've taken on this responsibility so that makes him happy. And then my mom, she's really thrilled about it. Um, and uh, I think it's helping her connection as well. Hmm. Um, uh, and then, okay, so in Sikhi, the scripture starts with this stanza. Ik uh, ongar, that's the first word in the whole scripture. Ik means one. Ongar is something like, divine word um it also means something like it has to do with om so om in the hindu conception is below middle above but it's also brahma vishnu shiva so creator destroy uh, sustainer and destroyer hmm. but it's all one in sikhi um and then god also has this connotation of a cut and we'll get back to a lot later then the second and so this it gets translated most often as there is one God, but it also means 
something like one reality is, or there is one being. Hmm. And then you have second uh, set of words, sat nam. Sat means true, but true in this conception has to do with permanence. So it's the most permanent thing. The truth is permanent. And I was thinking about this today before we got on where it's like, it actually gels pretty well with um, Peterson's pragmatic truth. The more true something is, the longer it will exist. Mm -hmm. And as long as something is in existence, it is true. And then this also ties into sort of this Augustinian conception that the evil is a corruption of the good. Because mm -hmm. falsehood does not exist. Pure falsehood. Right. You cannot have falsehood, like it has to, a lie can't exist without some element of the truth. Right. I could say Paul Vanderclay is a woman with red hair, but that only makes sense if there's a real referent there, right? Paul, Paul Vanderclay. Right. Um, and so it's always a distortion. So, um, well, that, that connects up to the Neoplatonism that of course for Vakey is, is, is New Silk Road because you know, negation. Um, and if you look into Neoplatonism and the, I mean, they had a lot of that. And Augustine, Augustine gets that from Neoplatonism. Okay. Um, then you have the second word, nom. Nom means name, identity, um, meaning, pattern. Um, and it does get explicitly juxtaposed with form. It is the opposite of form. Hmm. And so sat nam, true name, permanent name, permanent quality, um, permanent identity. Then you have karta purk. Purk means something like doer, person, but Sikhs are always highly allergic to referring to God as a person because it's not a guy with a body. It's not Mr. God, but it is a personality. Um, Interesting. Like this Even is a guru, to... a guru is a person. Yeah. Um, there's always this. We're very careful in this because the guru does not exhaust what God is or who God is. Um, he might be fully God, but he does not exhaust. That's what, like, even if you do this 10 times, you're not going to exhaust what God is. Um, and then, so the, Uruk, but then karta means something like creator or creative principle, but it also has this notion of cut in it. So the way things are created is through cutting, cesura, through hmm. distinction. Hmm. So there is a oneness, yeah. and then it gets cut into pieces. Yeah. Um, and then nirvo, nirvad, those are pretty straightforward, without fear, without hatred. Um, so full of courage and full of love. Um, akal, murit, akal, kal means death or time. And then all is, ah is the negation, right? The prefix a. So not death, not time, outside of death, outside of time. Murit means image or form. So now we have form coming into the mix. Meaning was first and then form comes in interesting um but it is the form of the undying and the form of the timeless so it's the form mm -hmm. without a form 
Akal Murat Ajuni, Beyond Birth, Not Birth. So it's not subject to the cycle of birth and death, but it also, this is like, Guru is one with God, but God does not incarnate. It's it's weird. Sapang. <laughs> uh, Sapang uh, means something like self-existent. Although I think the closest concept that I've run into, I, I'm going to butcher the Chinese. The Chinese is something like Zieshua, and that's their word for nature. Hmm. And that means something like of its own self-accord. Hmm. So it is the thing which causes itself. Sapang, then Gur Prasad. Gur is the principle of wisdom, Guru. And prasad is grace, gift. So this can be realized through the grace of the guru or through the grace of wisdom. So that's the basic outline of who slash what God is in Sikhi. Interesting. That's right at the front of the book. And it's repeated at the beginning of every section and um, in various other places. So like that whole invocation is present in the text i think a total of 38 times and then there's a shortened version which is which shows up uh like 60 times or something like that this is sung um it's sung it's also recited some people will repeat it uh kind of like a, a mantra you could say but like mantras are looked down upon in the scripture or condemned in a sense because it's you don't want your mantra to be a formula that you repeat in order to get things like it's not magic <laughs> you're not god is not magic <laughs> and don't similar to jesus on the sermon on the mount don't 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 repeat your words thinking that the repeat the repetition of your words will you know right will result in getting what you want it's it becomes sort of a form of idolatry Right. Don't don't make it transactional. Um, then you have jump. Jump means meditate, uh, reflect, and then you have your, your the first stanza. And the stanzas in the scripture, but in the first composition, the first composition is called Jap Chisab. and that basically everything you need to know about Sikhi is in that text. Hmm. And um, you're supposed to read it every morning, and Essentially, the rest of the scripture is considered to be the fifth guru said, can you, someone came to the fifth guru, Guru Arjun Dev Ji, and said, can you give us a commentary for Japji Saab? And he said, the whole text is a commentary on Japji Saab. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, um, and so the first, the, the stanzas are called Boris. And that means something like step or ladder so each stanza is and so um the first stanza it's starts with a question and that question comes in the last line of the first stanza and that question is give such yara hoye give gude krupte pal how can one be truthful a truthful truthful is in the noun form how can one become a truthful by tearing away the veil of falsehood and before that, it gives you all of these different things of what not to do to become a truthful. And this is where the radicalness of Sikhi comes in. The first line of the composition, of like the actual body of the composition, is Sochi Sochna Hove Je Sochi Lakbar. 
And that means something like through a hundred thousand ritual bathings, you will not cleanse yourself. And now think about what the religious act par excellence is for the Hindu. It's bathing in the Ganges, right? Uh, okay. This is the first thing from the composition. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you see why you get a little trouble. <laughs> the second is even if you silence by remaining silent, you will not be able to silence your mind, even if you stay in deep um, concentration. Boom. Buddhism, Buddhism. roasted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got you got one for the Muslims too. Well, the next one is actually for a hetero, heterodox school of um Hinduism. Uh, uh you will not be able to satisfy your hunger even by piling up all the worldly goods. Boom, materialist roasted. Wow. <laughs> um and then um if you try a hundred thousand clever tricks, not one of them will go with you. You can't fake it till you make it. Hmm. You got to do it sincerely. Hmm. You're not going to be able to fake your way to, to, to this. And, and what that. is the goal? Walking in the way of the hukum. And the hukum is the will. Hmm. So sometimes I, in fact, after I get off this, I'm going to make a video. And I'd, sometimes in my sermons lately, I've been talking about nature religion versus escape religion. Nature religion, the telos, the goal tends to be in this, in our current existence. Uh, escape religion tends to be, you know, there's a there's a problem here. And so we have to get to another place in order to arrive, achieve, be, et cetera, et cetera. Where does this land on that spectrum? Explain nature one more time. Nature is, um, you know, living your best life now. And religion can be a way to, and the, the prosperity gospel stuff, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pray and Jesus is going to send me a private jet. You know, Jesus is going to give me what Mr. Beast has to offer. Um, Mr. Beast is oh, a okay. YouTuber. So this is some, yeah. <laughs> so this is something like, Live your best life so that you can manifest the escape plan here. Interesting. Okay. So one of the things you have to recognize about the Gurus is that they were city builders. Hmm. They founded cities. And they built out a, a, a nation within a nation. Interesting. Um, so it's like, it's not live your best, it's not living your best life in the pursuit of uh limited pleasure. pleasure yeah it's um okay so there's peterson's taught been talking about this idea lately where um sanity is distributed mm -hmm. god is something like there is one reality right you are part of that reality there is one being you are part of this one being um when you there's lines in gurbani which the gist of it is Oh man, you have you are caught in duality. You think of yourself as a separate person. Okay. This drives you crazy. Okay. So you can see the connection with some 
you know, with, with, with a lot of the, the goal in terms of some of the other religions in that area then, because there's some similarity there. Well, there's, it's like, there's a similarity in the, like, it's not Advanta. It's not non, it's not Vedanta. Some people will say you need to study Vedanta in order to understand Sikhi, but it's like, wh why would Guru Sab create a whole system and he was just going to be espousing Vedanta? That doesn't make any sense. Um, and that, that's basically like a substance monism. There's only one, like, um, there's only one thing and you have to basically get rid of any notion of um, distinction. Okay. Right? But this is, the distinctions are real. Gartha Purk. Like God makes the he creates the world by cutting, by making distinctions. Um, there is a sense in which creation is ultimately false because eventually it will end, and it finds its permanence through God's uh, eminence, right? But um, it's there are real things happening in the world. It's not like meditate until you transcend this plane and exit samsara. And so th there's a whole, we could, this could probably be a different, if we ever do this again, we could go more into the philosophy of this stuff. Okay. Um, but like, there's... Or you could make your own videos. Yeah, that too. I've, I'm starting to write some stuff about the the sakis with the stories. So this is a very different literature than the actual scripture. Um, these are story, these are narratives from the lives of the guru. And some people, they cause some level of controversy because um, there are some people, there's a lot of arguments within the Sikh community. As Re religious controversy? Community. Differences of opinion <laughs> within a religious tradition? <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, so some people say that like there are no miracles in Sikhi. And other people will say that there are miracles in Sikhi. So the people who say that there are no miracles will dismiss a lot of the things that happen in the sakis because there's miracles in them and they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. even if you don't believe in the miracles the miracles can tell you something and it's like this is where excuse me reading eliotti getting um um comfortable with peterson and peugeot thinking has helped me like there's this great story guru amartas third guru it's actually really interesting because it kind of turns some notions on its head. So God and Guru are one, right? It's the same, same thing. This lady comes and visits the Guru and she's wearing a veil and she won't look at him directly. And he's like, you're not going to like lift your veil and look at me? And then he drives her insane. And it's like, whoa, like, why did Guru Sam do this? <laughs> And but like if you think about it in relationship to the other manifestations of God, it's like if you look at God, then you go insane. This is flipping that on its head. Hmm. Um, and so she goes insane. But then a Gursik, a, a follower of the Guru, is like, "I found this lady like that. You drove crazy. Like, how can I help her?" And he says, "Here, give her the shoe, or hit her in the head with the shoe." And so he goes and he throws and he hits her on the head with the shoe, the guru's shoe. So I look at the guru and she had to be humbled by the shoe to the head huh. in order 
to um, come back to reality, right? In order to become sane again. And then um, here's the, you two are going to get married. Here's the key to married life. And he gives him their other shoe. <laughs> wow. What a story. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, you got to humble yourself before that, 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 that divine in order to make marriage work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think people um, I think people from this video will get a good taste of you, Raj. And um, and like I said before, Raj has been an amazing um, part of the of the two Sacramento estuary groups. And um, as you can see, he comes to every meeting. And if you understand what we do in estuary, we go around the start. Raj always has interesting topics, although lately it's another woman who comes to our estuary meeting who is the one who she's it, she, she says it drives her crazy because people always pick her topics and uh, she doesn't like that. Most people <laughs> law, most people long to have their topics selected by the group. But um, um, anyway. So you guys, um, if you guys are interested, uh, you can find my YouTube channel, Raj Desange. It's mostly just songs right now, though. Um, well, spell it, spell written. it for me, Raj. R A J, and then D O S A N J H. Okay, that's that's your YouTube channel. Yeah, uh, right now it's just some music that I've written, but I am working on these uh, little analyses of these stories, and I'm mostly gonna write them, but I, I might make some videos. Okay. Okay. Well, you were doing a podcast before, weren't you? Yeah, we were. Ethan and I were doing one together, but yeah. it just, um, we're, I mean, he, he's very secular, very atheist. Um, and he wanted to do more of a news show and I'm like creative differences. <laughs> also, we got lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that American spirit rearing yeah. its ugly head. Hey, John Henry and Johnny Appleseed were a hell of a worker. That's true. That's <laughs> very true. Very, very hard workers. Yeah, the, the American the ruralists were hard workers and only <laughs> some of the industri urban industrialists. So anyway, no, Americans, Americans are hardworking people. That is, that is, you know, you know, when I hear the amounts of vacation that like the French get, you know, we Americans, we don't get anywhere near that, that much vacation. So. Nor would so, we know what to do with it if we had it. That, that's uh, we'd probably visit France. Um, so yeah, so Raj can be found on his YouTube channel, and he can be found here in one of the two in either of the Sacramento estuaries on a regular basis. And um, I suppose if someone wants to contact you, because I think there's, I think, I think people are probably going to want to people. People in this little corner, once somebody shows up here, tend to sometimes hunt people down. So uh, I can. If you, you guys, can... um, if ahead. you wouldn't mind putting it in the description, podcast poet at Gmail, you can email me there. That's also podcast a... poet. Yeah, that's also a sub stack that I have where I just post poems here and there. Okay. I was doing it daily for a while, but now it's more sporadic. Okay. I don't mind putting it in the notes. I yeah, mean, so you're if the anyone one wants to chat, the email. I, I'm here. I like talking. Raj likes to talk. <laughs> Get that from my mom. <laughs> well, I will end the recording right now. So thank yeah. you, Raj. This was this was as fun as I knew it would be. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate this.